You're listening to the Make It British podcast. I'm Kate Hills and I'm on a one woman mission to save UK manufacturing. I invite you to join me each week when I'll be sharing the stories behind some of the best British made brands and UK manufacturers and offering you advice and tips on making in the UK. So let's get on with today's show. Welcome to episode number 157 of the Make It British podcast. On today's episode, I'm chatting with Desi Soliver of Fashion Insiders and Co. In this episode, we discuss some of the challenges of starting a fashion brand, including one of the biggest challenges of all, which is how to find raw materials in small quantities. Desi's launched a platform called My Factory, which hosts online pop-up sales selling raw materials that designers may otherwise not have access to. And it also solves that problem for manufacturers that have cash tied up in raw materials sitting in their factories that they can't use. I hope you find this conversation useful. As always, if you have found it valuable, please make sure to subscribe to this podcast so that you get notified when I publish a new episode, which is twice a week at the moment. Okay, over to Desi. Enjoy. Desi, thank you very much for joining me today on the Make It British podcast. Thank you for having me. We've been spending quite a lot of time together on Clubhouse, haven't we? Yes, we have. (laughs) What an experience. (laughs) It it is, yeah. And offering advice to people in our Factory Fridays, people looking to, to start brands that are yeah, in fact, I, yeah, and we've we've dispensed some amazing advice. We've shared some great tips. We've gathered a really amazing panel, and we are building up a really nice audience, aren't we? And what's interesting is your background comes more from used to working with factories in Europe, aren't you? But yet we've both come from a luxury leather goods background at some point. So I was going to say that we have similar backgrounds, but sort of coming from different sides. So I graduated many moons ago on fashion design. And uh, my first job was working for a small um, ladies wear designer. And literally, as soon as I started, I realized I didn't want to be a designer. I wanted to be involved in the creative process, but not be a designer. And um, this basically became my career. I uh, jumped from one brand to another. I worked for some small brands, big brands like Burberry and Smithson, And I um, was involved with the design team, managing the design team, but really and truly taking the idea and turning it into a product. And that involved predominantly finding and matching factories for the idea that we were working on and uh, product developing and manufacturing. What have you been doing since then? Well, after I uh, moved around big and small brands and I learned the ropes of the industry, so I spent about 15 years doing this, I... Uh, the last seven of which were in Smithson. I sort of, uh, when I joined Smithson, uh, which was a leather goods uh, British luxury house, um, was just taken over by two venture capitalist funds and they really had to rebuild the brand from the ground up. And lucky for me, that was me who did it. So I was miraculously allowed to pretty much do anything I felt like to rebuild the brand. <laughs> so that was an amazing experience. And uh, I did that for about seven years. And when I was leaving, because um, changes were happening, I had spent a long time and I felt like uh, needing a new project. I was 
approached by someone who offered me the opportunity to start um, a business, an online business, uh, something that we both felt uh, passionate about and we saw a gap in the industry and we launched a manufacturing platform, which was uh, one of the first of its kind. We were connecting designers to manufacturers globally. And I did this for about six years. And then um, aside from the fact that I was not enjoying the whole software development uh, avenue, which we went down, uh, I also realized that uh, technology, while it's really important, wasn't going to solve the issues and the problems we wanted to tackle, but education was. And uh, in 2019, I uh, pivoted and I launched Fashion Insiders and Co., which is my current platform, which is focused on working with small brands and entrepreneurs and supporting them in that journey of launching or growing a brand. So what is it that you most enjoy doing these days then? I love working with uh, brands, with small brands and with entrepreneurs and helping them develop the product, uh, literally taking the idea and evaluating the feasibility, um, helping them strategize how to launch or grow their brands, uh, obviously matching them with manufacturer. This is where I get involved in the creative bit without being fully responsible for it. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> uh, so yeah, just the whole process. I mean, I through my years in the industry, I've got so uh, such a wide variety of experience that literally there isn't anything that I don't know about. And having that knowledge, such a vast knowledge and being able to digest it and simplify it and give it to someone and they make the best of it to grow their brand is just really satisfying. So what do you think are the biggest challenges for people that are setting up a brand right now in 2021? I think knowledge. I mean, I really think that there's so much technology out there that you can make use of to help you. But if you don't know the basics of how the industry operates, mm -hmm. um, you know, how to, I mean, you know how to Google things, but if you don't know how to make the right inquiry, as we all know, you're not going to get yeah. the factory to respond to you. If you don't know how the industry works and it's highly unregulated industry, you're not going to make the right decisions and you're just going to waste time and money. So yeah, I think that's so true. I think it just comes down for me down to knowledge. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're right there. In first in what you said earlier about there being a mismatch between the manufacturers and the brands, but also, you know, I'm always saying to to designers that say, oh, manufacturers are never getting back to me. I mean, I had one just this morning, actually. I, I've sent loads of emails from manufacturers and not heard from any any of them. And then you say, well, have you got your fabrics together? And do you uh, do you have your tech pack? And um, do you know, you know, what sort of quantities and what sort of costs you're aiming for? Or even have you got a profile for your brand yet and know who your ideal customer is? And they're oh, no, I'm just starting out. Yeah. So there's such a the big gap. Yeah. And you know, also the other thing I was this weekend thinking as I was planning my own podcast episodes, but uh, one of the biggest things in biggest challenges for people in coming to fashion is that A, they don't know that it's really not regulated industry, that there's no rules. You kind of pretty much make yeah. the rules yourself, <laughs> <Yes>. right? But, <laughs> but because of that, it's very counterintuitive. So everything that your intuition would tell you to do, actually, you should do the opposite. Uh, <laughs> Right. Or, or yeah. rather people do the opposite. I mean, like in what other industry do you go and pay 100 percent in advance 
for something that you don't know, you know, who you're talking to. You haven't gone and met them. You haven't asked for references. They just told you they can do it. I know. That never I mean, ceases to amaze me. I, know. I mean, there's one particular company who come very highly highly ranked on Google when you put in the term UK clothing manufacturer and they are neither. They're not in they're not UK manufacturer and well they're just not a manufacturer full stop. And they promise the earth to all these designers, particularly preying on designers that have only just started out, ask them for thousands of pounds up front mm-hmm. and then place a load of orders with a factory in, in India. Asia. Yeah. Or in I've heard of people waiting two years for the products to turn up and it's run by some cowboys out of an office yeah. somewhere but i no think i know who inside. you're talking about they have a great <laughs> website and have really nice blog articles and they tick the boxes for people who don't know the industry and yeah. don't know what questions to ask yeah. yeah and being and you see poor designers being ripped off so in i suppose in that respect then what sh- do you think a designer should look for when they are um looking f- seeking for help what sort of criteria how do you know that someone because i also like you help um new businesses out when they're looking to work with uk manufacturers but what would you say are the criteria you should look for when you are looking for someone to help you to help you to build your brand what questions should you ask I mean, um, you know, in in Clubhouse, uh, both you and I often uh, do comparisons to other industries just to simplify it for people and make them understand. And I often Mm -hmm. compare fashion to either the medical profession or to dating. So I think (laughs) that uh, in terms of, you know, finding a manufacturer, you need to think of it as a dating almost game because it's such a personal relationship. So what kind of a partner do you want to find? What kind of questions will you ask them if to us to, you know... uh, check whether they're the right partner. And so you need to meet them. You want to get to know them. You want to, you know, see who else do they know or work for in the manufacturing um, uh, area. Um, So, yeah, I mean, just questions like this. And and equally also, will you go to a doctor who is a generalist? Will you go and spend money on an operation if you haven't checked out the doctor? Uh, Who else would have they operated or worked with, etc. Right. So that's what I mean. That people have to use their common sense and and really forget its fashion. But like, what would I do in normal life if I had to go and find someone or pay for a service, etc. Yeah, that's funny you use the, the dating analogy because I used to kind of refer to myself sometimes as a Scylla Black of UK manufacturing. Oh, that's a good I'm, one. Because <laughs> I'm going to connect that person with yeah. that manufacturer over there because that's what it is about finding that yeah. manufacturer that you get on really well with, which is why when you're talking about a, a digital platform that connects people with manufacturers, it at the moment it's impossible to completely make that relationship work, isn't it, until we get the most amazing artificial intelligence that can because there's something in that certain sort of je ne sais quoi with I think that brand will get along with that manufacturer I mean yeah yeah you're right and I think first of all the biggest problem is the quality of the data so many platforms when they start um, uh, being built and created they need the data and the data if you do it properly and manually like I did it for Utelier the data is very slow to accumulate you have to go and ask lots of questions sometimes manufacturers don't want to answer some of the questions so yeah. you need to find a way to you know try different ways to get that information you want to get pictures from them uh, you ideally want to go and visit them. Or I used to find people in different countries, I'll, you know, freelancers, I'll pay them a little bit of money and send them to go and vet them and take pictures, etc. cetera. Um, 
Whereas a lot of platforms now, they just go and buy a directory list from somewhere with contacts and mm. they just upload it. So overnight they have thousands. But then the quality of the data is really bad. And then yeah. a lot of manufacturers get the wrong kind of inquiries that are not aimed for them. So one of the, the biggest challenges that we know that everyone has is, is getting hold of materials, particularly understanding working with a UK manufacturer, like the discussion we had last week on Clubhouse, understanding that it's CMT um, and that you have to source your raw materials yourself. The factory will just make up your products for you. And I'm sure you have the same thing with, with designers struggling to find materials. In fact, I know you do because that's the reason I've got you on today um, to, to solve this problem of how can designers get hold of small quantities of, of fabrics when they're first starting out so they don't have to invest a huge amount of money in the, that initial order. Yeah. So it's interesting. This pandemic has really changed the industry. Um, I know you've covered mm. that subject a lot. But one of the biggest problems in the industry that happened was obviously the disruption in the supply chain. Everyone had to shut down. Um, yeah. So orders were stuck, but also raw materials were stuck, not only in terms of shipping and moving them from one location to another, but in terms of manufacturing. And yet, so many small businesses had to keep moving and keep going because that was their livelihood. So what was really interesting is that someone um, in Slovenia, a contact of mine that we often chat, um, she had a business um, a little bit like a cooperative with different designers uh, under one roof. And they started swapping fabrics between them. And we were discussing how genius this was because that allowed oh, them yeah. to very quickly get fabrics and to launch limited edition collections that they can keep on selling, but also they were testing. I think sometimes when you have, when you face limitations and challenges, you can almost get more creative. And they were at, yeah, at that junction. Definitely. And at the same time, I had a lot of the manufacturers that I have close links with contacting me and saying, I, this is, order is cancelled, this client's not paying, can you help me? And how can I help them? It's not like I had, you know, magic wand. Um, but as I was talking to them, the one thing that they kept saying is, if you just send us clients, we have fabrics here that we can offer them and they can use really quickly and we can make something for them really quickly. There'll be no delays. It will be really fast. So this theme kept recurring the fabrics, the materials that manufacturers had in stock, but they didn't have the client base. And this is something that uh, then... Um, together with um, a, another girl that I knew at the time and we were talking about uh, what can we do together as a project, we very quickly put together a website and we uh, took the inventory from one manufacturer I knew well in the leather industry and we put it online. And basically it was leftover stock that he had from the production with big luxury clients he was working with. We put it uh, available to buy at no minimum order quantity and reduce prices. And that Brilliant. was a great so, solution for him because yeah. it yeah, it turns some stock into cash, which he really needed because all of a sudden he had higher bills to pay. He was buying tests for his factory to test his people. Um, he had about 200 workers. He had to weekly test them and make sure that they were COVID-free. And he had to uh, pretty much operate his factory 24-7 in order to create space between the tables and the workers. He had to um, create shifts so people would work on eight-hour shifts, some in the morning, some in the evening, some through the night. It really depended on 
family circumstances. But obviously that increased his bills of running the factory. And so this was one way when orders were cancelled and reduced to, to, to get an income for this factory. Brilliant. So you have taken the materials that that is it. It's a leather goods factory. What, mm-hmm. were, what were they making? Bags or small leathers or both bags and small leather. Yeah. So I mean, I've been to those sorts of places where they've just got shelves upon shelves of rolls of leather, like everywhere, and they almost don't know what they've got. So what was that process to get that leather catalogued and then onto because you've got a website haven't you yeah that you then load I mean, it up to is it so uh, because we are busy because uh, everything is just so disrupted and we also don't forget we are at home with kids right yeah <laughs> uh, so it had to I, I was always thinking what how can we make it really simple and how can we also be different so one point of difference uh, was the fact that we were doing leather when there's quite a lot of people selling dead stock fabric already on the market so I I feel like for fabric manufacturers or for people looking for fabric, there's more opportunities at the moment to tap into the dead stock market. But for leather, there wasn't really anything. And luckily, my strong contacts were primarily with leather. Um, The other thing was that um, this contact of mine, he trusted me and he sent me his inventory of leftover material sitting on his shelves. And I literally pinpointed the ones that I understood what they meant. I saw a bigger quantity. So it wasn't just one skin here, two skins there. And, And I got him to send me pictures. So he sent me pictures. We narrowed down the choice from that a little bit more. And... You know, it wasn't perfect. I I got, you know, a lot of, I started off with some really nice ideas of we can have this kind of pictures and that kind of pictures. But the reality is that someone who works in a factory in the shipping department with his phone is snapping (laughs) some pictures and sending them. (laughs) You can't really see the grain of the leather or the true colours. No. So we, um, I got him to uh, send me swatches. So they cut some swatches, they couriered them over so we would be able to get close-ups. We weren't able to get, uh, you know, full skin pictures that were nice. Occasionally we did. Um, But we just, you know, we cobbled it up and it's not perfect. Um, but it's it's good and enough to help how other much people. Did the, how much of the stock did you did you sell of that? So that when was when was this? You did the first sale with this guy's so, leather stock. So we did it in November, just uh, before Christmas. And how much of his stock did you did you sell? We sold just under ten thousand euros worth of stock. Oh wow! Brilliant. Yeah. So that all and that all went to designers in the UK or all it across was, Europe. Well, we offered it globally, but very quickly we did the little test run, and it was only five days, and it wasn't that much stock. I think we had something like we tested five different articles, five different printed leather, plain leather. There was some gold leather, there was some lining leather. It was five different things. Remember, everything is just testing. Um, So we tested those five ideas of what's popular and we opened it worldwide. But obviously for the US, the shipping is much, is very expensive. So we had a lot of abandoned checkouts and primarily they were from Australia and America, where funnily enough, they really need leather. And especially in Australia, there's much less choice of suppliers, but the cost is astronomical. So we quickly learned that we need to focus on, for now, on the UK and Europe market. Um, And a lot of our transactions were just one skin, one or two skins, because people were testing us. I mean, we came out of nowhere. You know, we don't have sophisticated marketing. We have a website that is blank until the flash sale opens. 
So there isn't really no review, nothing. We are nobody just coming out from the ground. So but that's great, though, because you help that that group of designers who who you know were willing to be flexible about what material they were going to make their their next products from, and they I presume they got a bargain on something. Yes, they did, and because they, I mean, yes, they did got get a bargain because they got to buy leather that they wouldn't normally have access to yeah. really premium leather that luxury brands will buy at really premium prices and more than anything else large minimum order quantity so even though the price per skin was probably not cheaper than what a designer brand will buy at that the fact was that those uh, small designer makers will buy something they would never be able to buy and they can buy just yeah. one skin and and that is the at the moment who the majority of our buyers are the designer makers who um, you know work on either bespoke for clients or they just put out small limited edition of collections so they don't need a large amount of stock and they are not uh, constrained by it needs to be this color or I want a particular type of collections they almost whatever they find if they like it and it resonates with them they buy into it and. And it, it saves it saves from waste, which is what all designers want to do these days: is make their business more more sustainable. So I can see how this works really well for both the the, the manufacturer who has all this dead stock sitting around, and also for those brands, particularly the small brands who are looking for stock of you know available materials in small quantities. So what are your plans for it? for expanding this. So if I'm a manufacturer in the UK listening into this, and I know lots of them do listen to this, and I know as well that a lot of them have got a lot of material. So we're not just talking leather, but we're talking about all of, you know, jersey fabrics that maybe have been, you know, a cancelled order or something that wasn't, um, didn't turn out the colour that the designer expected or something. Or we've maybe got a lot of the woollen mills in the UK. I know there's a lot of worsted fabrics at the moment, which would have gone into suiting, which, um, you know, no one's wearing suits at the moment. So there's probably a lot of that that's available. What can, what can they do if they want to run a, run a sale with you? How does it work? Well, I mean, you know, we looked into, we started off by looking at the UK and the problem there was that most of the factories, even though they have leftover materials, because they're CMT, um, so they make a trim, cut make trim, uh, they don't own the fabric necessarily. So that was the no. problem. That's why we actually ended up with working with uh, European, fa uh, European manufacturers and not UK because the European manufacturers are fully factored, which means that they buy all the raw materials and then they manufacture the product for the client. But ultimately they own the leftover materials. So that's why we ended up with European manufacturers. But um, Interestingly enough, since we launched, obviously, we were straight away copied. Uh, I've only just found out this the other day. Oh, but, gosh, uh, so they've done it to your Utelier platform no, and now it, they're doing it. it. In a slightly, but this is the nature of any, in, in any industry. Yeah. The minute someone has a good idea, it gets copied. But funnily enough, <laughs> yeah. who's copying us is tanneries. So it's tanneries who are struggling to sell their stock. They are selling it now in a flash sale format, just like us. Uh, but obviously, we have the difference that we are 
selling leftover stock. So we are not generating more product to sell it. We are just redistributing leftover yeah. product. So that's our point of difference. But my point here is that I think that um, UK factories or any factory can pretty much do what we are doing. They just need to perhaps connect with their customers, existing customers, and tell them what's on offer, what they have in stock and offer them better price for those materials, encourage them to perhaps um, create one-off or limited edition collections. And in this way, turn into cash something that is just gathering dust on the shelf. Mm. I mean, I'm thinking about, I, I, was vis- I visited a Jersey fabric manufacturer in Leicester a couple of years ago, and he had hundreds of rolls of fabric from as far back as the 1980s. Um, there were some really amazing fabrics there, actually. You know, the sort of crinkle, the crinkle stretch fabric that everyone used to wear mm-hmm, in fluorescent mm-hmm. colours in oh, the wow. 80s. Yeah. Um, and he said, Kate, do you know anyone that would want this? And I was like, yeah, I'm sure there's loads of designers that would love this. And he said, well, it's all got to go all together at the same time this weekend. And, and this like, is I don't the problem. Think I can- <laughs> And this is the problem. This is the problem. And otherwise it goes into, you know, the local, you know, gets taken away and taken down the dump. So how how can we overcome that problem? Well, you know, I mean, the biggest problem with managing this leftover stock for factories is the resources. But they literally need to find someone who can catalogue what's available and either mm-hmm. list it on their own website, create a website or go to a place like Etsy. And... Um, and a lot of the manufacturers that we approached initially, they weren't able to do that. They don't have the resource. I mean, we are only able to work with these few partners we are working with at the moment because they're larger and they could spare someone to answer our emails, to get us the information. And then we are processing that information and putting it together. But for them to do it, that's a barrier to entry to the market. And like mm. you said, they wanted, you know, shifted immediately. They're not willing to list it somewhere and literally receive it one meter here, five meters there, something like that. Yeah, that is so that is so the, the factory that you work with in um, in Europe, did they send off each individual order separately? Well, they are, but you see, that's why we're doing flash sale because in a flash sale model, we concentrate all the sales in five days and then we send them the orders in one go. So within two or three days, they can get all the orders rather than one order today, three tomorrow, zero the day after in a drip kind of style. So so any manufacturers listening to this, this is what they need to do to free up some cash. Yeah, or, I mean, yes. Mills I mean, in the UK. I mean, I'm talking to someone else out of India who really wants to participate in our flash sales, but it's India. It's again, we have logistics issue here. We can't yeah. move the stock. But uh, literally what I'm helping her now is to catalog her stock on paper to, you know, price it up. And just to then, inc- I'm encouraging her to send her send it uh, this um, spreadsheets or whatever it is she'll create to existing customers and just tell them this is yeah. on offer, this is what's available. And encourage yeah. them, you know, if they're using a pattern that's existing, a style that they know it's a bestseller, why not make a little bit in something new, in a new material that's available? You don't have to wait for it. You're going to get it at a better price because obviously the factory will give them a deal because they want to get rid of this material in the nicest Mm. possible way. So there's lots of opportunities. It's just that people need to be a little bit more creative with their thinking. Yeah, definitely. I mean, certainly if you're looking for a a wool 
based fabric in the UK, then there's tons of mills still that are in, you know, Yorkshire and Scotland that I'm sure if you approached and said I'm looking for for dead stock fabric would now be open to that idea, whereas they probably weren't two years ago. Yeah, and I think that that's where also fashion is changing. Um, I really yeah. truly think that the pandemic has changed how we're going to work in the future, but uh, also how we think about things. Yeah, definitely. So what? how do you see the future then, you know, talking about that going forward? Because, you know, I've been... Yeah, thinking about how do we connect people with, with manufacturers going forward. We had a when I had our trade show, which sadly we had to cancel because um, because of the pandemic, obviously. But it does make you think of more creative ways to start connecting people to manufacturers. And what what are your thoughts on on how that may change? You know, you've tried it with the platform with Utelier, and now you're um, helping people on a on a more sort of intimate one-to-one basis, aren't you? But how, how do you think that will change going forward, how people might might work in the future to get new collections and new brands off the ground? Gosh, if I knew, I think I would make a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. I mean, I don't know. It's changing all the time. It's changing. But, um, uh, you know, when you work with uh, individuals one by one almost or in small groups, you don't get a bigger overview of what really is happening around the world. And I... Even though I'm aware of the topic of sustainability, until Clubhouse started, I had no idea how huge it is, how many people are talking about it from so many different angles. And I learned so much myself about sustainability. So I really think that um, the one thing that definitely is changing is that post-pandemic, everyone now is a little bit more conscious about the planet. And, you know, all this conversation, who started the virus? Was it a lab or was it an animal? You know? (laughs) Whichever one the truth is, the fact is that we are part of the problem. And to solve the problem, we need to change our habits and how we consume. So with that in mind, I really think that um, the consumption model will change. And there's more and more designers interested in upcycling, recycling. You know, they're encouraging repair of products, which means they're encouraging less consumption. And if you think about it, if there's less consumption as a result of using leftover and repairing and upcycling and recycling, what happens to all these mills and factories and producers of raw materials? That would also have to change. Yeah, it does. And they need to to move with the times. You're right. Yeah. Mm. And also, I mean, I was talking as part of my research when, or in the summer when I was talking to different people and seeing who's affected how through the pandemic. A few agents' conversations I had were very interesting because they are scared for their existence because they say, you know, the small guys, the small brands that are emerging are either not interested in buying large volume or they are not able to. And the big brands, they're looking to be more competitive in price and the minute they can manufacture more they move the production overseas to get better prices so these agents were like well first of all we wonder whether in five years time we will exist there'll be a need for us in the market but also what happens to the tanneries and mills in europe 
who can't compete yeah. with overseas prices. So that was really interesting as well. Mm. So you're talking about, you know, something like the great big linear Pele show, which I used to hate going to when I when I worked in the leather industry. Mm. I mean, I love, I, yeah, love I love the actual, <laughs> I love the leather industry. I love going to a tannery, but I do not want to see five thousand tanneries all yeah. in one great big exhibition hall. And so, yeah, it's changed the way that people source things, the way that trade shows and events run. I hadn't thought of that about the agents. So the sort mm-hmm. of guys that used to come and visit us and show us tons of swatches. Yeah. Yeah. yeah not so not so needed anymore. Yes, but also they they also worried about the raw materials manufacturers, the tans the the tanneries and the mills. Because if if they make their money in the manufacture of a certain minimum order quantity and nobody wants to buy into that minimum order quantity anymore or those who can move overseas for better price, what happens to them? Yeah. Well, I have certainly seen minimum order quantities coming down without doubt over the last couple of years. Manufacturers who traditionally would have said, you know, I won't even look at an order of less than a thousand pieces, manufacturers in the UK now actually saying I've, I'm going the other way because actually there is more profit in making small quantities of higher quality product than making big volume, churning out big orders of lower lower quality. So, and also because people don't want to buy thousands of products anymore. And it's a higher risk to a manufacturer to be um, you know, taking massive orders just from one or two or three customers and it's better to work with some of the smaller guys so I do think it is now a really good time for small brands I I agree and I think that this pandemic also made us appreciate the local designers and the local businesses because at the end of the day they were the ones who saved us Uh, if you needed something and you weren't allowed to travel it was your little local shop that was available it was the little designers who had the stock at home that were able to send you candle soap or whatever you were buying online yeah right so i hope that's going to continue i hope so too yeah i certainly i certainly do think so so uh where can people find you desi if they if they need help and if when can they find out when you're next doing your next flash sale of so they can go to my factory with an i at the end dot com uh, I'm sure you can put it in the show notes. Um, I will do, but, yeah, I'll link. But so the flash sales are sort of every four to six weeks at the moment. And the minute one finishes, uh, you can sign up to the wait list and be alerted when the next one starts. But it's roughly every four to six weeks. And and actually, this really also depends at the moment on logistics because shipping to the UK is just a nightmare. Yeah, that's a whole other yeah, exactly. topic. Yeah, that's yeah, definitely. But that is where maybe if there are um, any tanneries in the UK or any manufacturers or mills in the UK that might want to contact you. Yeah, I mean they they, they can get in, in touch with us through the website. Uh, we are very active. Yeah. Julia, my partner, and I were very responsive. So definitely, we are interested because you know with this last uh, sale, fifty percent of our customer base they couldn't buy because they don't even have the last shipment of leather from six weeks ago. It still hasn't arrived to them. Oh, really? Yeah. Because, of, because of Brexit? Yeah, yeah. So where else can people go if they're looking for... If, so if you're covering mostly leather with a view to doing fabrics going forward, where else would you recommend people go if they wanted to buy fabrics in small quantities? I mean, there's... Um, 
there's a website called, it's an American website, but they operate uh, throughout the world and including Europe and it's called Queen of Raw. And that's for yeah, fabrics. Queen of Raw, yeah. yeah. They, they have a little bit of leather, but it's primarily fabrics. I think for leather, bachelors have a really nice website now. They do, uh, yeah. They're merchants, um, but you can buy small quantities from them. Um, wasn't there, what was there was... Uh, there's a lady called Charlie and she has like a membership in a little yeah, shop. Offset Warehouse. That's it, yeah. Offset yeah, Warehouse. Yeah, that's good for for, um, for environmentally friendly fabrics. Yeah. Uh, Though not necessarily dead stock, I don't think. No, she buys end of, she buys small quantities, uh, end of line, something like this. So it's almost the same as. Oh, okay. Yeah. It, it's not, um, she doesn't commission, as far as I know, fabric to be made for her. She just buys whatever she finds that she really likes and packages it. Mm. Um, she has some good fabrics on yeah. there. Yeah, and there's I a few, I'm, I mean, I know of a few clients who have found other sources. Uh, I can put the list together and send it to you. You can easily distribute to your listenership. Uh, but yeah, yeah, that would be brilliant. Through Google, there's, uh, there's quite a few other little places. Not necessarily dead stock, but at least they're UK. If you needed fabric, they're UK based. Yeah. Or contact your local mill or tannery. Yeah, that. Or, or even factory. Yeah, and absolutely ask the factories what's available with them. Mm. Definitely. Desi, thank you very much for your time today. Really Pleasure. lovely to speak to you. And also people can find you at Fashion Insiders, can't they? Fashioninsiders.co. Yeah, and my factory with an I at the end.com. And if anyone as well wants to come to our clubhouse uh, calls, Factory Friday, Fashion Factory Friday, yes. 3 p.m. on Clubhouse. Yeah, they have to follow us, you or me, and then they would get notified when we open a room. But it's every Friday. And you've got your own podcast, haven't you? So people can also listen to, to some of your tips and advice on there. Yes, Fashion Insiders. <laughs> yes. Brilliant. Cheers, Desi. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Make It British podcast. I make an episode every Tuesday and Friday, plus there are bonus episodes occasionally. So make sure you subscribe in your favourite podcast app. And if you're looking to find British made brands or UK manufacturers, check out the directory on the Make It British website, which you can find at makeitbritish.co.uk forward slash directory. Thank you for listening. Bye bye.